I'm going to invite Tyson to come uh, and join me. Uh, we're, we're landing our World Upside Down series uh, this morning. And we wanted to sort of dialogue a little bit around some of the questions as to where this series ends and sort of lands while we pause it before we come back to it next uh, next summer, but Tyson, I realize I'm starting to intro and we agreed that you would do the introduction, so I'm just going to be quiet. No, I, but this is, this is great because you also, I have to touch on your teaching from last week and you're going to sit here and listen to me do it, so I think this is, this is a great way for us just, just to, to kind clarify, of bounce back and forth. Just to clarify as well, uh, Tyson is also here in this sermon uh, because of comments that I made last, ye- last week. Um, Peter have asked that I always have somebody on stage with me. Uh, <laughs> If you were here last week, you get that joke, and I apologize for bringing it up again. Yeah, that's been traumatizing for some people as you continue to unpack that. But anyways, yeah, this is a think as we're kind of coming to, I would say, even what it looks like a natural kind of pausing point within the book of Acts as we kind of see the, today this climactic experience of Peter and a discovery that he has before Acts really starts to jump into a lot of Paul and kind of takes off that way. So I think this is a great place for us to kind of land this summer series and wrestle through and almost circle back to some of what we've talked about. And now, the beauty of technology is that if you've missed the last 12, 13 weeks, it is all available on podcasts. So we're not going to recap the whole thing here, but I would encourage you to jump in and pick up where you maybe missed in some of those teachings. But I think what we've been seeing over the last number of weeks is just kind of a brief recap in that sense, is this stretching of the Holy Spirit in the early church and in the early followers, of stretching them in their imagination of how God works, stretching them in their understanding of where God is at work even, where they're discovering that God's ahead of them and they're encountering God as they go. And them just trying to kind of catch up and begin to understand, oh, maybe our understanding of how we thought God was working is being broadened, is being deepened, is being expanded as far as what they look at. And, and I really love it, and we haven't necessarily talked about it in this way, but Walter Brugman, a theologian, talks about this understanding and how we walk through kind of our own faith journey is this orientation disorientation and then reorientation is how he talks about this journey that we constantly go on. Um, Brian Zond, another guy, talks about it in a different way, saying we, we, fi- we, fi- we lose Jesus, we find Jesus, we rethink Jesus as some different ways as how we expand and grow in our spiritual journey, which I think is exactly what you see so far up to this point, is them discovering what's happening, having things shifted, and then rediscovering what that now means for them. And that's exactly where we come into the text today, is I think Peter's reorientation or rethinking of Jesus comes to its climactic kind of moment, as you discussed last week, you know, this vision of of food and eat and don't call what's, you know, unclean, or don't call what God has called clean unclean, and, and then this interaction with Cornelius as people who have come to say, hey, Peter, you need to come to our house. And Peter... Yeah. Well, I was just to say, I think that you've got, you know, I, love, I love your summary there, but you can feel there's the sense of this is how the story is going. Like yes. my confession is this, is this is part of just the history of the early church, but how Luke is telling the story, uh, it, the way it works, you feel the story reaching a natural kind of pivot point, totally, which is going to take us on into the future and, and, and make sense of what we get to next summer when we study Acts. So it's, only, it's a natural break point, yes. but everything starts kind of coming together. If this was a movie, we're getting into the last sort of 10 minutes of part one of the series of films. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and so that, and that's exactly what's now happened is these people have come to Peter's house. They said, hey, Cornelius wants to see you. Peter is essentially trying to get into this space and is going to try to say, no, that's not how God works, but he goes with them anyways, and he comes to visit um, Cornelius and basically asks them this question of, 
can I ask why you sent me, is really the question that he asks. And Cornelius gives the story of what God's been doing in his life up to this point, which leads us into you know, our text for today, and maybe we'll jump in and just read that because there's lots for us to kind of unpack in this. But starting in verse 34, we then get this, as Peter's arrived at Cornelius' house, he's heard what God is doing. Peter now is, has listened really well to what God is doing in the other, and now he begins to speak, as it says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ to his Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how we went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. I mean, there's a lot there in that text of, of some significant things that are happening within Peter's own journey in this climactic moment of now seeing the Holy Spirit be given to the Gentiles in a new way. And, and I think there's a few things for us to unpack, like how do we listen to God well? And I think we'll get to that because Peter definitely has to do that before he speaks in this moment. That's part of the story. There's a question around, you know, as Peter was going to show up to say, this isn't how God works. There's this wrestle, I think, for us to go about, well, what is certain look like for us and how do we navigate that? But I think the thing that I kind of want us to focus in maybe at the start is right at the start of Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 where Peter talks about this idea of God not having any favorites. And I think that's a significant thing for us is this understanding of I realize it's true that God does not show favoritism. I think naturally we assume, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I wonder if we actually stop and think about it, if we don't see some of even cultural shaping that makes us almost believe at times that God doesn't have favorites. Like I think about the Dallas Cowboys, which I can't stand, but it's almost NFL starting this week, so I feel like we have to talk a little bit about it. Um, everybody, there's, everybody there's one NFL football. fan in here. Yeah, yeah. Someone else was like, nice, I'm in. Um, <laughs> either that or they do like the Cowboys. But uh, the Cowboys had a really old stadium back in the day, and it had a hole in the roof. And actually, when you talked to the owner, they said, why did you put a hole in the roof? The comment was, was so that God could watch his favorite team play football. That was legitimately part of the reasoning they put a hole in the roof. Was God this bless cultural? Texas. God bless Texas. Yes, that's right. That's right. But this, there's this understanding of, of, well, God, of course, has a favorite football team. I mean, you think about it in other sports. You see, hey, this is me stretching into your world. The, you know, the players coming out onto the soccer pitch. Yeah. And they're on different teams, and we've talked about this at different times, but they're praying that God gives them favor as if God's like, ah, it's Arsenal over Man United. I'd do that for Fish. That He's somewhere here because I know you guys have a strong rivalry. It literally kicked off five minutes ago. Oh, nice. I was even on with that. So, (laughs) 
But I, but I think that there's this, right, there's this shaping of culture that makes us almost wonder or believe at times that God does show favoritism. I mean, yeah. to get into more serious examples, and obviously jump in wherever, but you start to get into nationalistic ideas of God has favorite nations over others and stuff. Yeah. And that's when it starts to get really messy, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Because there's then a belief that God's always on your, on your side and mm -hmm. your agenda, and he's never questioning what you're doing. And then you yeah. see, you know, wars get waged and people get hurt mm. because another group of people becomes the enemy and is not the people that God loves and wants to see thrive. Yeah, yeah. So, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking here, I just, so I realized I sent over to you uh, when you were building our keynote, just a pile of uh, random thoughts that I said might come up and be helpful <laughs> from time to time. I, um, I, I read this on uh, this week, which would have been a phenomenal quote to have had in my sermon last week, but you, the great thing about being a teacher is you always come up with a better sermon on Monday morning than the one you taught on, uh, on like, so this is what I should have been talking about instead of like cats and, 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 and eating of food and weird things last week. But uh, Chris Green says this, we are called to share in Christ's vocation, joining him in bringing to bear God's holiness for the good of all creation, right? So we talked last week about holiness as a set apartness, as an all, and what we often very careful, what very so unwisely do is assume that, that our holiness gives us status, right? So, so, you know, we're the people of God, therefore we're, God sees us as better than everybody else. And I think Chris summarizes actually what God's been trying to show to the Israelites throughout the Bible and trying to show to the people of uh, the early church in the first 10 chapters of Acts. He says this, we cannot live out our vocation unless and until we dramatically reimagine the character of holiness and the sanctified life. And this is the key bit, seeing our set apartness not as an end in itself, but as a call to live together with Christ in his radical openness to and intercession for our neighbors. So I, I think this is a beautiful summary of what God's been trying to do throughout all of scripture. I'm gonna call you, I'm gonna ask you to live this holy life because I have a plan for everybody. And, and what we consistently do is we say, oh, God has called us, we're better than everybody else. How do we ensure that we keep them at a distance from us? And this is, I think, the sort of discombobulation that's happened to Peter, is that he's on the roof of his house going, here's the lines, and then all of a sudden, these visitors from Cornelius turn up. And, and notice how, did you notice how Peter started the sermon? I now realize it's Acts chapter 11, and Peter's finally got what God's been trying to do the whole time. Oh, God's been trying to reach everybody. And, and I think that's really, that that's, would be my sort of thoughts on what you were saying there. Yeah, and I think it's an, it's an interesting one that kind of ties into this, you know, absolute certainty kind of idea in a sense, because I think that we often assume that the life of following Jesus is one of functioning within absolute certainty, that this is how God works, this is who he works with, this is how it's going to happen. Um, even churches at times have have navigated that where we say, well, if you want to start following Jesus, it is step one, step two, step three, and everyone follows the same steps, and because this is exactly how God works in that sense. And Peter really, up to this point, has continued to have different interactions and things that are, should be stretching it, but it has taken him a long time to move away from his kind of absolute certainty in that sense of this is how God works to, oh, maybe God 
wants to expand into uh, new realities of who I'm to love and who I'm to engage with and who I'm, I'm to share life with, to serve, to care for, all of these things. We've seen it in snippets, but as you said, he says, I now, I now know, I now know. Which is an interesting thing to think about when it comes to, you know, and it may be a scary one to go, well, do, do we need certainty? Or what does that actually look like for us as we navigate and follow Jesus? And this is where you and I have had some conversation this week in, in preparation for this, talking about a, a few different kind of ancient stories from various different histories and, and thought processes. And one of them that came to mind that we, that we ended up talking about a bit when it came to this idea of certainty is this ancient story of three blind men kind of going on, a, going on an adventure. Why three blind men are going on adventures is a different comment for a different day by never, themselves. Never think too deeply but, about but, Yeah, ex exactly. In that but, way. <laughs> but, but they come, they, and some people have heard this before, but they come, they come across an object. And the first blind man, or a blind person grabs the, you know, what feels kind of like a trunk in that sense. And he goes, it feels, I think it might be something kind of like a tree. It feels like it's a trunk, right? And then someone else grabs another piece and they're like, oh, it kind of feels like a, a a rope, but it, it's kind of moving, right? Like it's active, and the third blind person kind of pushes up against and he, uh, something that's quite firm and goes, oh, I, I think you guys are way off. It feels kind of like a wall, like it, it, it can't be moved. And, and the punchline of the story is that they're all looking at an elephant. They're all coming at it from a different perspective. They're all seeing things from a different kind of lens, but they're all certain of what they of what they see and what they feel, not see, that's terrible, um, of what they feel in that sense and what they're encountering. Yeah. And the interesting part, and a guy by the name of Jared Bias points this out, is that we often read that story as, as the reader and go, well, yeah, we know it's the whole elephant, that we can see the whole elephant. But his point to start to wrestle through in, in, in thinking about this story is, yeah, but what if we're the, what if we're the blind person? What if we started to hold ourselves in a humility that said, maybe I don't have the full picture. Maybe it's God who actually sees the full elephant. And we're one of the people that come at it from a, you know, our life experiences, how they shape us. Um, you know, uh, our upbringing, all of these things play a part in how we perceive the world and how we look at the world and how we then interact with it and even think about what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, but it's an interesting story. Yeah, and I think, so the, the, there's the positioning of how, and this is actually true of biblical parables as well. The story of the three blind men and the elephant is not a biblical parable, yeah. just in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> but they have, they, yes. They have, we're like leafing through. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Um, but I think you can hear that the point of the story is that, that, that we tell the story from the perspective of, Oh, I can see that that's an elephant we're talking about here. Um, what if we position ourselves in the story and say, well, I'm just somebody, you know, holding an elephant's trunk. And here comes the piece, convinced that what I can perceive is the whole of the story. And I think this is essentially the challenge that's going on in Acts. And I think the moments in Acts where even throughout this series we've perhaps hit, hit points where we're like, okay, where do I sit on that? There's always this danger for us as Jesus followers to assume that what we know of Jesus is all there is to know about Jesus, right? And, and that, I think, is a perennial danger for the church, that, that we have we have figured out how God works for us, 
And therefore, we see another church doing something different, and we assume they're wrong. Right? Um, and, and then, and because if we suggest that they might be right and I might be right, then we worry that we've hit a space of relativism, in which case we go, oh, well, there's no truth anymore. One person has to be wrong and one person has to be right. But there are moments in life where you can have a different perspective on the same thing and both of you be right. It feels like a wall. It feels like a trunk. It feels like a rope. All three of the people are right. It does feel like all of those things. What they've not yet managed to piece together is we're all looking at the same thing, right? Now, another blind man comes along. Let's, let's build on this story, just make it more complex. Another blind man comes along and he picks up a rock and he said, no, it's hard and you can hold it in your hand, right? Now, let's just be a bit ridiculous for a moment. He is not holding an elephant. Right? So, so the three people in that case can say to him, we don't think that what you're feeling is the same thing as what we're feeling. It is possible to live in a world where there is truth absolutely so defined, but we live within it with a humility that says there, this truth is so big that some people might see this truth in slightly different angles and different perspectives. And, and this is where, not to sound like a, a dripping tap on this, this is where I think being Jesus-centered is so important. Because well, are we, these, these blind men can feel their way around it. Eventually, if they'll dialogue, if they'll talk with each other, if they'll refuse to build lines, they will figure out, oh, we're all holding the same thing, just in slightly different ways. And they can also say to the fourth guy, no, you have a rock. <laughs> you, you, your thing is not living. Your thing is different from our thing. So, so we're, we're going to try and figure this out. And I wonder if we've always been hesitant as the church to do that. And why I like the story of Acts is that actually it taught, shows us that there's a natural human hesitancy to think that God is bigger than we realize. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Richard Rohr, uh, in one of his uh, sort of comments, I really like this. Most people do not see things as they are. Rather, they see things as they are, right? So I'm here. I'm pushing on this elephant. This is now my perspective of what an elephant is. It's like a wall. And somebody else says, no, no, it's like a rope. Both are right because there is an elephant. There is truth. And they're all in the space of truth. They've just not realized how big truth is. So their perspective becomes the defining one. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I love, again, this piece because I think it's what you see in Peter is this understanding that he comes almost to the, the realization if he was to hear this story to go, oh, yeah, I get it that I just have a piece of this. But I love what you also said in this and this dialoguing together because this is the story that Peter continues to, to, to move on in that yes. sense, because the church is going to hear, what is Peter doing yeah. at Cornelius's house? Why did he stay multiple days there? Why is he sitting around the table? Why has he entered their home? Why has he even engaged in this? Because again, he's got a bunch of people that he's going to have conversation with that are looking at their yeah. limited scope of how God is working or think he works. Well, well this is exactly, so what happens in the story, and it's, it's quite a long story, you could read it, uh, it, you know, at your own leisure, but exactly as Tyson says, what happens is, word gets back to Jerusalem that Peter's at Cornelius' house, and, and people are, 
less than enthusiastic about this. Let's say this. This doesn't make sense because, wait a minute, as Peter said to Cornelius when he turned out, you know, normally we don't hang out together. So, but I now realize, I now realize this is not the case. So Peter is summoned back to Jerusalem to have a conversation with the, the sort of elders of the church, really, to define, like, what is going on there? And, um, and so you get this piece here. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And Acts now goes on and repeats the whole story from the previous chapter. Now that, just as a point, when you're reading a piece of biblical narrative, when they start repeating stories, they want you to know the story. <laughs> so one chapter later, let's tell the whole story again. And that's fascinating. Peter tells the whole story. I'm on the roof. I see this vision. I go to the house. God's clearly speaking to Cornelius. And, uh, and then Peter says, uh, look, look at this. As I began to speak, this is the end of his comment to the Jerusalem church. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here now Peter starts to make sense of the story that he's in. He says, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And now to the Jerusalem church, his eternal credit. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Like this is a huge shift in the ecosystem of, <laughs> of the church because now they realize that they thought they were part of a story and God is changing the story that they thought they were part of. Now, what they'll then go on to realize is actually God had always been trying to do this. When they, they come back with this new, these new lenses of the spirit, you might call it a hermeneutic governed by the spirit, they come back to the story and realize, oh, actually Jesus and God are working hugely consistently through the spirit. But I love this idea of, of being brave enough to say, if God gave them the same gift he gave us. They draw a pattern. It's, it's the moment where the two blind men get round to the elephant and realize, oh, this is the same thing. There's got to be a moment where we realize we're, we're all actually pursuing the same truth. We're pursuing the same, the same ideas. And, and I think why this is important because I don't think we always do this as the church. I think our tendency has been to build our lines and keep our lines. And rather than saying, if Jesus is working here, let's go explore it, we, we tend towards saying, and I think you see this across, goodness, pick a number, the last 2,000 years of the church, the last 20 years of the church. You see this tendency towards, we'll build our boundaries and live within them. And we, we shy away from saying, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is working there. Who are we to stand in God's way? Even if God appears to be working, the Holy Spirit appears to be doing some stuff, not in the order that we would do it, not with the people that we would do it, not with a way that we could imagine it. Are we brave enough to sometimes say, well, let's not mess with that. So, so you told your story about, um, about uh, elephants. I want to tell a story about Procrustus. Right? So uh, does anybody know the story of Procrustus? 
I was curious if like you were just like reading about Procrustes before you came to church this morning. Like, hey kids, let's just get some cornflakes and talk about Procrustes. Procrustes was, is, a, is a myth from ancient Greece. Uh, he was a hotel owner. And Procrustes boasted, uh, he liked things, he, he liked things just so. And Procrustes boasted that anybody who stayed in his hotel would have a perfect night's sleep because his bed was perfect for everybody. However, the reason this was is Procrustes, when you stayed at his hotel, would do one of two things to you. When you lay in your bed, as you tried to go to sleep, if you were too small for the bed, Procrustes would attach ropes to your arms and legs and stretch you until you fitted the bed. And if you were too big for the bed, Procrustes would saw off your limbs until you fitted in the bed. It's not a true story. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if it's better or worse than your cat story. Absolutely. But um, and it was actually, it was actually, and you maybe have heard philosophers occasionally talk about Procrustean beds. Procrustes' bed became a model in Greek philosophy of what happens when we encounter something that doesn't quite fit with what we want. Do we accept this new thing or do we hack it up to fit our way? And I think one of the dangers for us in the church is we've often tried to fit Jesus into a Procrustean bed. We've said, this is how we want Jesus to work. This is how Jesus should work. And if it doesn't work this way, we're going to get involved in stopping that. I think we do this, I think we do this with moralism. I, I think that, that we set out to be Jesus-centered people. And we believe that being Christ-centered, being Jesus-shaped, will lead us to a place of moral transformation. And I'm not arguing that. I think that is what we see happen. Following Jesus will transform you into a Christ-like person. But I think what starts to happen over a while is we realize it's quite hard to define following Jesus sometimes. This is even what Peter's struggling with here. It's hard to define following Jesus but it's very easy to define moral standards. So what we start to do is we move from pursuing moral transformation to pursuing moralism. Moralism doesn't need Jesus. Moralism could just be do this, do that, do the next thing, you're okay. And I wonder if the challenge for us in the church is not to sometimes wonder, have we done that too? Right? Have we actually decided these moral categories are the significant ones for us? And whether you say you're following Jesus or not, if you don't fit into these moral categories, we're not having the conversation. And does Acts 11 call us as a people to start to use language like Peter uses and like the Jerusalem church uses, where they say, well, God is clearly working with these people. So if God is working, we're not going to stand in the way of that. Now, if you keep reading Acts, and this will be next summer's work, you'll notice they do start to define how do we track our moral transformation? How do we, what is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Those are all deeply important conversations to have. But I think it's important at the beginning to say, are we okay? It's a personal question that I think you have to work out yourself. I have to work out, you have to work out. Am I okay? with saying what Peter said, that when Jesus is working in someone's life, am I willing to adapt and adjust to allow space for that person to be centered on Jesus, to follow Jesus, even though at the start of the day in Peter's case, I was pretty sure I could have nothing to do with this type of person. And I think that's the challenge Acts has left at our doorstep. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, and that all ties back even to this favoritism piece, this understanding that Peter's finding himself in to go, hey, this doesn't, 
make it's not all connecting like there's something that's expanding yeah. in his own thought process mm. and i think that's really the piece for us and i think you've said it well in that sense for us to wrestle through is is do we want to stay and this is a personal question that we can only answer in our kind of comfortable space in that sense mm. to say no this is this is the bed that everything has to fit in and otherwise i'm not interested yeah or are we willing to start to hold things a little more open-handed to say, I'm willing to maybe have my view expanded, stretched beyond even my own limits of comfort in some senses into God's life and how he wants to work in the world. Now, there, there's questions that then come with that, which I think you know have to be answered as well. Like, how do we listen to God in that sense? If we're willing to hold it open-handed, how then do we discern and think through oh, this is what God is doing and not just, you know, a, a fly by the seat of our pants and let everything go in, in that yes. kind of sense. And I think that's, you know, where scripture comes, in point, comes into play and prayer comes into play in a lot of these yes. different aspects of how we actually learn to listen to God and discern what God's doing. And I think Phil said it brilliantly, you know, a few weeks back of how we, we listen for God in others as well, mm -hmm. which I think is what is what Peter has done really well and does become kind of the, the currency in some senses of how you move this, this way of life forward, is we have to become really good listeners. We have to become really aware of where we hear God at work. Mm -hmm. And that takes practice, that takes intentionality, that takes yeah. a whole whack of things. Well, I think this is, there's two sides of listening, isn't there? There's how are we listening to God? How are we listening to the people that we are encountering on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And how are we listening to ourselves, actually? What's going on in our own lives? And I think, I think what happens when we read a story like Acts 11, and, and perhaps when we dialogue, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm really off on this, but I think where we get nervous with stories like this is, is because we have over time, and this is where, let me just say it like this, this is where I get nervous, right? Is that over time, I've developed a method as to how I think things work, right? Uh, and it's, in some way, it's the only human way to survive. You do things in a way that you understand and can make sense of. And when somebody starts to say, what if that method's not scriptural, right? Or what if that method's not gospel? Or actually, in the case we're talking about here, what if that method's just not the only way it could happen? We're very quick to assume, oh, but if we don't have that method, how will we get to where we're going? So if you're telling me we don't use this method, what I'm hearing implicitly is we're not going where I thought anymore. A metaphor that comes to mind, this is not a parable, just a metaphor. Have you ever been in a situation, that we don't do this so often because of Google Maps and stuff like that, but you ever remember the situation where, where two people were trying to give you directions? Uh, have you ever been in that situation? Uh, this was like every conversation I ever have at my grandparents' house. Like, hey, how do I get here? And now my grandfather and my grandmother know the best way to everywhere, but it's, they never agree on the best way, right? So, so now they're both passionate passionately arguing, the way to get here is this particular route. And then the other ones argue, no, it's a different particular route. They're both trying to get me to the right place. They just have different views on how to get there. Now, I think that that's, that's the conversation we're having here, is that can we, we're not saying 
well, who cares about getting to Jesus, right? What is the goal of following Jesus? It is to become Christ-like, right? So the, the question is, can we, our openness is, can we broaden our mind to say that maybe through the Holy Spirit, God's taking some people on a journey towards Christ-likeness that is not the same journey that you're on? Uh, and I think that's what Peter's realizing in this story. He's all of a sudden realizing, wait a minute, I thought God did it in a particular process. Now I'm realizing God doesn't show favorites, so he doesn't demand everybody works the same journey as I do. And that, that's how I want to almost define. There is a story that we're part of. The story is, how do we get to Jesus? <laughs> but are we willing to say there might be multiple routes? Uh, not multiple faiths, not multiple religions. I'm not saying any of that. Sort of yeah. I'm saying that, that, you know, maybe your pathway towards Jesus is a slightly, maybe the Holy Spirit works on different things in you than he's working on in me, but he's still trying to get us to the same space. Yeah, and I think this is where that dialogue piece comes into play that, you know, Peter gets at at the end where he's having this conversation with the church leaders and they're obviously have asked questions, they're then wanting to listen and there's, they're trying to understand, you know, how can that group of people come this way? Yes. But then there's a willingness in them to say, Oh, okay, I hear that. We are actually going the same direction. Yes, it does look different. And, and you know, in other places in Scripture, it's going to pick up on, like, you don't need to get circumcised, or if you have been circumcised, don't undo your circumcision, right? Like, because those aren't the pieces that matter. It's the direction that we're moving towards in that sense. And that's the really key thing for me is in that, in, in what you're, in that vein of what you're saying. Sometimes, yeah, there is a tendency to say, oh, but if we're going that way, How? And then we get defensive if it comes against how we think it is, whereas the actual response of the church here is to say, no, tell me more about that. Let's learn. Let's discover together. And I think that's a healthy part of a discernment process is that conversation together to say, hey, let's discover together if, if this is what God is doing. And you see it there. They go, yeah, we don't have any more concerns. God's definitely at work here. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit has shown up. So, yeah, that's... That's impossible to argue at this at this point in time, um, and so yeah, I think that dialogue becomes really key because, like you've said in other places, you know we see things as we are, and oftentimes the stuff we get most upset about is either the stuff we're struggling with that the Holy Spirit's working on in us and not in others, right? Or it's the complete opposite, the stuff that we think we've got really good and under control and the spirit isn't poking at us on, we then turn and look at others and go, no, this has to, the procrastinate bed, this has to get sorted if you're going to follow Jesus. And so, so here again, if you, read, if you continue reading Acts, like if, if in your kind of homework this week you go and read all of Acts 11, just keep reading, and you'll notice that the church starts to wrestle with these things. Like, okay, right, so we've now got Jews and Gentiles in the same church. How are we going to eat together? Because this is like, this is going to create some challenges for us. But the question becomes, how do we do it? The question doesn't become, let's just not do it. Um, I think of, uh, and perhaps just as we prepare to dialogue, uh, you know, I'll tell this story. Yeah, I grew up in a, in a church um, that, that, you know, again, I've, I've talked about my church I grew up in before. It was, it was traditional in a lot of ways. Uh, and they loved Jesus. And, and I had amazing moments of, uh, of, of getting to know Jesus in that church. But we had real hang-ups, and it was, it was Scotland in the 1980s. There was pretty much many things that you could do as a Christian, but one thing you could not do as a Christian was smoke. Uh, that was pretty much, you smell like hell, that's where you're going. And, um, and that, was the kind of, that was the kind of mindset that we, uh, anybody else remember those days? You know? and, um, and we had this, we had this one guy in our church who is just one of the most beautiful, beautiful Christians I have ever met in my life, uh, and, and he smoked. 
And it was amazing how that was a barrier, that there was all sorts of people. He served everything, he was always there, but there was a barrier to him being trusted, like he couldn't do anything kind of that we would consider more, more, more important was almost the, the mindset, because he smoked. And, and it became this huge hang-up. God was evidently working in this man's life in all sorts of places. And then there was other people who didn't smoke that were like, you could see even as a young person, like there's some issues with that person. But because they didn't smoke, they were okay. We were inside, outside, and the barrier was cigarettes. And what I've noticed in my kind of 40 years of, of, of life trying to follow Jesus is that it just keeps changing what the thing is. Every generation of Christians, so we chuckle a little bit about smoking being such a big issue, um, but every generation of Christians, it's a new thing that, oh no, that's the barrier. Until you deal with that thing, your journey of Jesus is on pause. And I think what Peter's asking us and what we're going to see Acts do is, are we just brave enough? Are we brave enough as God's people to say, we're going towards Jesus, we'd love you to come with us, but we understand that we think it goes A, B, C, maybe God's going to work it, you know, G, E, W with you. And actually, maybe if I'm really honest, I'm not going as A, B, C as I pretend I am. And I think that's the heart that we need to carry into this story, is to be brave enough to say, actually, God's working in someone's life. Who might stand in the way of that? Yeah, I think that's great. And maybe actually, this is where we just maybe we pause and have some dialogue because there might be thoughts around some of what we've tackled. And there's lots within this text that we could go in. And if people want to sit here for three hours, we, we, we could keep unpacking this together. But um, yeah, maybe we'll just pause and have some dialogue and see if there's any comments. See what the Spirit maybe is doing in you. Maybe just even from reading the text. Maybe it's something we didn't have unpacked that has popped yeah, out. Totally. Um, a question, a comment, anything like that. Kristen's in the room. Kristen has the microphone. And uh, she will run we around. We stole both the microphones today, so Kristen has to run around the room. So, uh, uh, yes. You know, just Kristen. sorry, Kristen. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to ask about uncircumcision. Um, I don't think we my question's actually around, like, through this whole journey, it's been amazing to see the simplicity and the, kind of that echo of we're co-laborers with Christ. These are the acts of that. those who first followed him. And they're simple. It's, it's similar to you know, when Jesus says, my, my yoke is light. Yes, you know, some of them, most of them got executed, but the stories are not about, like, okay, that may have been difficult, but these interactions of how the gospel spreads, these are the actions which spread the gospel. And you see a common theme throughout of a, dismission, a, a dismissing of separation, a dismissing of special favoritism, a dismissing of judgment too, a complete withholding of judgment so that God's gospel and his love can proceed. Um, thinking about the elephant in the room conversation and that rock, you know, and, and I, I think I could probably list a few things that I think may be rocks in our lives or there may be those holding rocks telling us, no, this is the real gospel. But how as believers in this 21st century where words can be confusing and, and, and metaphors from 2,000 years ago can, can somehow be stumbling blocks, how do we discern whether it is a rock that we are being led to put our faith in or if it truly is the real deal? In the sin. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's actually, you know, like, uh, like I love it. I love, just for the record, I, I, you know, let's just, let, it would be great to hear more kids in our dialogue time. I, uh, 
they often have a lot more clarity than us. And Chris, you know I love you, but they're way more to the point as well. Um, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. Chris is my friend, so I hopefully he'll forgive me for that joke afterwards. No, he's shaking his head. He will not. <laughs> you're not. You're not friends anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, I, I think that that this is actually the question: is 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 how does our discernment process work, and how do we spot rock from an elephant? Right. Um, I, and and I. You know, maybe my answer is going to seem really, really, or my response rather than answer to that is going to seem really basic, but, but I actually think that's what Scripture is trying to do for us. I think if we are a people of the Spirit and the Bible, I think we can be drawn and, and, and guided in those things. Like, I, I'd ask almost for all of us to think, because Chris's comment, I think, is, is really maybe the question that all of us are wondering, so how do we do that? Uh, and, and what you see the early church do is this blend of spirit and scripture, this sense that, that we're going to we're going to listen to what God is. We're going to assume that when people turn up on our door and want to follow Jesus, God's bringing them. That's what, that's what Peter does. But then we're also going to search the scriptures with new lenses. And our new lenses are God is bringing people to him. So what does scripture say about that? How does scripture draw us into that? And I would say, if I was to be critical of our moment in sort of Western evangelicalism, or if that's what we are, um, is that we spend a lot of time asking what is scripture? What is the Bible? And not a lot of time asking how is it working on us? What is it, what is it doing for us? How is, it, how is the spirit disturbing us in this? Um, and, and I see a story throughout Scripture, and I think Peter's beginning to realize that's the story he's part of, that, that is, that's consistent with guiding us toward, towards Jesus. So perhaps, Tyson, feel free to you know, jump in on this, of course. Uh, perhaps, how do we tell the difference between a rock and an elephant? The, our role as the church is to immerse ourselves into the words of God while being open to the Spirit of God, so that, so that we might know the story that we're part of. And, and, and this is what I mean about the, the moralism versus following Jesus thing, is, is am I brave enough to actually hear the stories of Scripture and, 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 re, and see them in a, in a deeper way that will help me realize what I thought was a rock is also part of the elephant. Yeah, and that's, the, that's even the tension of Peter, I think, in this is... Um, is this the scripture that he has, the understanding of scripture that he has as the word of God. And then there's also the word of God revealed in Jesus that he's wrestling with the two of this expansion of what he's read and how he thinks God works and what is actually happening and what Jesus talked about and what they're learning in Jesus. And the same thing I think happens for us in that sense that we have to be thinking through is, is what is the Bible doing? What does the Bible do? What's the role of the Bible? That's a big question to, to answer. And the Bible is pointing us towards Jesus, who is alive and active and still speaks, right? Like, and the Spirit works in us and all of So there's this tension of where are we going and are we open to God, to an experience of God in ourselves as we wrestle through Scripture and not just saying, hey, this is just the word and this is the story from 2,000 years ago, but how is it working in my life? What does it mean for me? How do I now get expanded? out into the world in response to what I'm seeing as God challenges me and will show up maybe differently than what I'm reading about, but what God is doing in those people is shaping 
shapes us than in our thinking and how we go out in, in the world. Otherwise, and, and I think it's Jennings, I can't remember who talks about this, but he says if you read, if you read the Bible um, strictly just about the characters and we're not open to our own experience of God, you're just a historian at that point in time. You're just reading history in some senses of here's what God did in other people, but it's, that, it's our own openness and willingness to have an experience of God to be challenged, to be shaped, to be stretched like Peter, to say, well, here's God at work, and who am I to stand in the way? Because we've been shaped by how, seeing how God's kingdom people look and work and act within the world, we then have to apply that into our current context. I, I can't help but think as well, um, and if there's another question, throw up a hand, and uh, Kristen will make her way to you, but... You know, Peter began his sermon, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. Okay, so they're like just, they're like I almost want to ask a very simple question. Like, do you believe that? <laughs> there, there's a piece of text, Peter, you know, Jesus' his apostle says, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. Chris's daughter just said to us all, God loves everybody, right? Even the sinner. And like think about, like a, like a child can grasp that, okay? But what we do as adults, I think we start to caveat that statement. You know, like has Chrissy's daughter said anything to us this morning that, that Peter didn't say to Cornelius' house? And, and are we comfortable to live with that as our theology? God loves everybody. And we so quickly start to caveat. And is maturity as a Christian building more and more caveats, right? That, yeah, no, but, but, but not people like this and not people like that. And, you know, um, smokers, people with tattoos. We didn't like those when I was a kid either. Uh, that was definitely... <laughs> Definitely, you know, people with tattoos, probably smokers. That was generally our, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, you, know um, I, you know what, listen, I, I don't want to, I just want to live in a moment with the Holy Spirit for a second. The, the, just a, a, a beautiful young voice just told us something. And at some level, nothing we're saying in this sermon is bigger than that. God loves everyone. And is maturing as a Christian adding caveats to that statement? Or is maturity as a Christian refusing to add caveats to that statement? And instead having caveats to my own life, which says, because God loves everyone, I am going to have to live uncomfortably sometimes. I'm going to have to live sometimes with people that I don't think fit. I'm going to have to sometimes have a friend with tattoos. <laughs> I, I, but you know, I mean, it sounds a little ridiculous, but that's the sort of question. And we make it so complex, so deeply complex. And I actually just, I almost don't want to say anything other. I'm doing a very jab, bad job of not saying anything other. But, but, but let's just hear the simplicity and truth of what was just stated in our room. And what would it look like to be a community who said, that's going to be our goal, is to not add caveats to that statement. 
that God will bring people to us. The God is it's true of us ourselves. God just loves us and wants us to follow him. Will he transform us? Of course he will. Will the Holy Spirit do work in our lives? Of course he will. <laughs> but where am I adding caveats that keep somebody else from realizing that God loves everyone? I mean, it's very simple theology and profoundly hard to do. I don't know if you want to, and it may be that there's another question as well, but I don't know if there is another comment, but yeah, I, I, and I think this is where, and we've seen it, you know, in comments and conversations of what even the Spirit's been doing in us over this series of this, this reorientation moment of Peter that is discovering this in a new, in a new way. Mm. And I wonder if that's not going to happen to us if we're willing to go down this road. We may have had our, or, our orientation in one way to say this is how it works. The disorientation is potentially conversations like this going, no, but what is scripture doing? What are we seeing the spirit do? How is that shaping us? And the reorientation coming back to this simplicity mm. to say, actually, and I really like what you, you know, mm. you've said there about is maturity about adding less caveats. It, well, mm. at least onto faith and maybe mm. more onto us as, as people to yeah. be willing to live differently and in uncomfortable spaces and mm. in light of, you know, as you've said all throughout the series at various points, that God's love is going to take us to places yeah. we don't want to go. That's yeah. probably the caveat that we live with yeah. in response to God loves everyone. Mm. I think we've got one here and then. Kind of just a closing thought. Brian, what's a closing thought? You do the closing thought, David. <laughs> no, no. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to give it to you, Randy. Right yeah, I like you. this. But just even building on, again, what Chris's daughter said there, it's, it's this idea of openness and going to the idea, your, your point about caveats or adding caveats, is to what extent are our survival needs to be right or be in control, to, to what extent does that restrict or cut off our openness? So it's, just, it's a distinction between the truth versus our need to be right or in control. And then what could the Holy Spirit be revealing to us? Just some thoughts there. Let's just, um, oh, I just killed my microphone, let's do that. You can have that one. Thanks. Any thoughts? <laughs> no. no, no. Uh, <laughs> um, let's just hold on that question then for us. Thank you for, for sharing that. What is the Holy Spirit revealing to us. Uh, corporately, as a community of Jesus followers, what is, what is Jesus through his Spirit revealing to you this morning? And go wrestle with that, be open to that, think about that. May you be like Peter and say, now I realize that God does not show favoritism. And may his grace and peace be with you this week.